Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The city of Chennai, India, is running out of water. Monsoons typically provide the bulk of water for Chennai, which is one of the largest cities in India. It is on the southeastern coast of the country in the Tamil Nadu province, which is a region that relies on seasonal monsoons to supply the bulk of water. But last year's monsoons were exceptionally weak, causing aquifers and other water sources to run dry. Now, in some neighborhoods, if taps run at all, only a trickle comes out. Many neighborhoods are reliant on water trucks, but only if they can afford it. Meanwhile, many people who can leave the city while this crisis persists have fled. The proximate cause of this crisis is, of course, poor rains. But according to my guest today, Mira Subramanian, deeper political and social factors have exacerbated the crisis. This includes poor city planning and a focus on massive infrastructure projects of limited utility. Mira Subramanian is a freelance journalist and independent author. She's written a book about water issues in India titled A River Runs Again, India's Natural World in Crisis from the Barren Cliffs of Rajasthan to the Farmlands of Karnataka. And in July, she authored an op-ed piece in the New York Times which makes the case that disaggregated water resource management could be far more effective in combating crises like the one we are seeing in Chennai today. And she explains what some of those solutions might look like. So if you have 20 minutes and want to understand both what is happening in Chennai today and how cities might become more resilient against these kinds of natural resource crises, have a listen. And before we start, just want to remind you of the great benefits you could unlock by becoming a premium subscriber to the show. This includes access to nearly 20 bonus episodes, which are in-depth conversations with fascinating people in foreign policy to discuss their life and career. And you don't want to miss the pearls of wisdom embedded in these conversations, particularly if you're someone who is in the early stages of their career in foreign policy. You'll get a lot of good life and career advice from these conversations. And for those of you who are perhaps more established and want to keep your self abreast of the daily news as it emerges from parts of the world less covered by the mainstream media. I offer you complimentary access to my daily news clips service, Dawn's Digest. Many large organizations subscribe to this service on behalf of their staff, but you as a premium subscriber to the podcast get this complimentary. Go to patreon.com slash global dispatches or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and Follow the links to become a premium subscriber. Thank you. Now, here is my conversation with journalist Mira Subramanian. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization 
hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Chennai is actually, my father is from Chennai, so he he came here um, way back in 1959. So, um, but I've, over the course of my life, I've gone there. And back then it was called Madras, right? It was called Madras. Yeah, Yeah. it was called Madras until until I was in my mid-20s or so. Yeah, I have have like a map on my wall from 1991 and I was looking for Chennai. I was like, oh yeah, it used to be called Madras and there it is. (laughs) (laughs) And people still still call it both, both, it goes by both names still. But um, but, so I have a a huge extended family there. So I, I get there every one to five years I, I pass through Chennai and visit family and um, also work there as a reporter but it's uh, so it's it's a quickly growing city like many Indian cities um, it's at about eight million give or to you know depends on where you draw the lines it sometimes goes up to 12 million and sometimes down to five but it's one of India's um, largest cities you know definitely within the top six cities um, and the largest city in the south. So it's right on the sea. So it's right on the Bay of Bengal, um, and it's uh, it, uh, so it's got it's got it's got. Um, my family lives down near the Adair River, which drains right into the the Bay of Bengal there. So it's right on the beach and um, has a lot of issues going on with water in terms of not having a good source of incoming rivers, uh, questions around pollution, and then incoming uh, saltwater encroachment as well. So. Why is Chennai running out of water today? Um, they're very, very dependent on monsoon rains. And this is a, a condition that's across South Asia, that the uh, monsoon rains deliver sometimes upwards of half of their water in a really short amount of time span. Like maybe, you know, it might, the monsoon in the south runs from October through December. Uh, but even within that, it's honestly like, hours of time you know it's really heavy rains in short spurts over just a couple months and so um, you really need to capture those rains because you can't just depend on rivers running that you can tap into anytime you want so um, India and Chennai in particular is um, really dependent on reservoirs filling up in order to keep the keep the water running through the pipes through the year and and I take it that this year, the most past, most recent monsoon season, was far weaker than historical averages. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, last year, the, it, it came late. The kind of summer monsoon dribbled on, but didn't really give as much rain as they wanted. And then, I mean, the numbers for the, the peak monsoon um, in the in the autumn and that October through December time um, was like 55% less than usual. And when half of your water comes from those seasons, you're down to a quarter of your water demand um, being reached. So they they had uh, low monsoon rains. It They dried up early. So they ended up, uh, the rains stopped by early December. And then um, they went 200 days without rain. 
And and so that all created a, a situation in which demand for water far outstripped supply. And, you know, I recall everyone was sort of counting down to that day zero. And we saw that also in, in South Africa and Cape Town this uh, last year mm-hmm. as well, where there was worries that municipal water supplies would just run out or, or run dry. What's the situation like today uh, in terms of, of Chennai? Like, how are your friends and, and family back there coping, dealing with it? Yeah, I checked in with my um, I checked in with some of my cousins uh, when I was working on the New York Times piece, and they said when it was, it, you know, it, it changes depending on which part of the city you're on. So you can't like categorically say, you know, all of Chennai is out of water or out of piped water because it kind of depends on which part of the city you're at. But there, the reservoir, the four, there's 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 primary reservoirs, and they're all virtually dried up. They're very very low. They're like you know, of 1% of their capacity. Um, they are, as we speak, getting rain right now. So um, there's some hope that there's some recharge happening as we speak. But um, so piped water had been out in some parts of the city for upwards of four months because really they were just waiting for the summer monsoon to come, but the fall monsoon had not replenished the reservoir. So, so what, you um, like turn your tap on and nothing comes out? Yeah, yeah, and a lot of a lot of people in India um, don't have dependable, twenty four seven piped water like we have the luxury of in most parts of of the United States. I mean, most of them don't have that. Um, anyways, they are many of my middle um, class, upper middle class uh, cousins get water from a variety of sources. They might have a bore well, so like a, a well that they can tap into. They might get some delivered by tankers and. Put you know re- fill up a, a tank that's up on their roof that then they can use. So they're actually using multiple sources already, even when things are you know quote unquote good. Um, but the but the um, with the with the advent of the um, crisis in the past month or so, I checked in with my cousins and like one of them said the water tanker deliveries were coming uh, in really sporadically, like you'd have it on order and then they would just cancel on you. The price had doubled uh, for the amount of water that they were getting. And they, I mean, one particular cousin that I talked to said that they actually drilled a second bore well. Um, And so they have, you know, they have the means to do that. And then also when you're talking about what that looks like in terms of drilling a well, he said they, they went, I said, I asked him, how far did you have to go down to tap into water? And he said 170 feet. And that, even just 10 or 15 years ago, that would have been about 120 feet. So the water table is dropping. So even when there is water, um, people are reaching farther to get it. uh, And it's just, it's untenable. It's not a sustainable system if you're having to just keep going deeper and deeper. And if you're not uh, a person of of means there, if you're not middle class or upper middle class, how are you dealing with this situation? Like what... (laughs) What yeah. does that look like? Yeah. Yeah, that is that is the really terrifying part. And this is what I was really looking at, um, especially with the research of my book where I was out in rural communities, um, farming communities, places where they are uh, really dependent on water, not just to get through their daily living and sanitation and health needs, but actually just for, for livelihood as well. And the people who are most disadvantaged are feeling this impact the most. Then they're also the people who you often don't hear from. Um, so that is the uh, you know there's there's um, a lot of information just about how disproportionately um, affected marginalized communities are when it comes to these issues around resources. So, for example, in Chennai, um, it's kind 
it's a really a double whammy in Chennai because they had um, major flooding happened in 2012. And this is kind of the flip side of drought that we're seeing with climate changes around the world. I reported on this in the U.S. and in India that the fluctuation between drought and flood is happening more frequently. Um, and we're seeing this, I think, especially here in the U.S. in, uh, in California um, and some places in the upper Midwest. But the Places that um, used to be wetlands in China, in, in Chennai, that were really uh, the places that were helping recharge those aquifers, the places where it kept it so that you didn't have to drill a well so deep. Um, those places have uh, been encroached upon by development, and this is this is lax um, oversight from the government. It's uh, poor and rural people coming in from uh, outside of the city and trying to settle wherever they possibly can. And so these are really um, unplanned settlements. They don't have set water. So these are people that are dependent on tankers coming in or community wells that are, um, you know, they don't really have that much control over. And so they're in places that are most vulnerable in terms of their access to water as well as the places that are most vulnerable when the heavy rains do come. Can I ask, in, in your reporting in Chennai and, and elsewhere where there's been water shortages specifically, have you observed a specific gender dynamic to um, how these shortages impact women in particular in ways that might be different from how men uh, are impacted? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I traveled all over um, India working on multiple uh, stories for the book, and women are the ones who are responsible for water for the most part. Um, you know, just think of how much we use, we depend on water just for uh, cooking needs, cleaning needs. These are duties that are still predominantly performed by women, um, and not just in India. And so that those, if you have to travel farther for water, if you're actually like going, say you have to go to a public well in order to get water, then you are bringing that back. And that is that is mostly women. Um, yeah, the New York Times had a picture of a man and I was like, that's mostly it's mostly women who are doing this work. Um, so in, in your Times piece, you argue, and it seems very convincingly that the government of India, Narendra Modi's government's response to water crises in, in Chennai specifically, but elsewhere, has been to invest in like massive infrastructure projects. Uh, you argue that that's not likely to yield the maximum impact. Can you sort of just describe what sort of investments are being planned or have been made in terms of, of giant infrastructure around water? Sure. I mean, India is a, a, a major player in terms of big, building mega dams, like very, very large scale dams. And a lot of those are those really massive ones are more up in the Himalayas. So they're more in the northern part of the um, country. And that's a whole you know, we could head in that direction talking about the, the, the changes that are happening in the Himalayas uh, in terms of uh, glacial pack and the runoff that more than a billion people depend upon. So that's one whole part of it. But then throughout the country, um, there's areas that are, are seen as uh, water, more water abundant and places that are uh, more water poor, as well as the because there's a northern monsoon and the southern monsoon coming at different times, there's the the idea of like, oh, well, we'll just take the water from the places where it is and we'll just move it to where we need it when we need it, um, as though that was an easy thing to do. And so there's a major uh, 
for years now underway. It's called the Interlinking River Project. So basically, India has been working on these major infrastructure projects that that connect rivers. So they're connecting rivers from one river to a different drainage. Um, huge. I mean, if if this whole project, it, parts of it have been done, other parts are still in process. And you know, once it's done, it will be the greatest engineering feat on the face of the earth. It's like a, a massive, massive scale. Um, the the tricky part is that uh, water goes where it wants to go. So there's there's it's kind of fighting nature in that way. Um, there's also huge questions around just dis- displacement, displacement of human communities, um, fracturing of ecosystems. So both human ec- and ecological impacts that come from that kind of major infrastructure work. And in Chennai specifically, it's a desalinization plants, right? Those are the, the that's considered like the the next frontier of of how to deal with these water shortages. Right, right. That's the other thing. So they're just starting the the third major desal plant there in in Chennai, and uh, and yeah, those are um, again large scale. They're hugely power uh, consuming. So India is working really hard to get all of its population on the grid. In the first place, I mean, there was a, you know, there was a, a major blackout that happened back in 2012, and like 300 million people were out of power, but didn't even know it because they didn't have power <laughs> anyway. You know, there was just there's huge areas of the country that just do not have, um, again, good dependable 24/7 electricity. So, uh, India and Modi has been really working hard on this. Um, and and to his credit, he's really pushing renewables uh, quickly, you know, both wind and solar. Um, but also India feels like they have every right to get power to their people however possible. So they're also rapidly building coal plants and other fossil fuel dependent um, modes of energy. So energy is coming from both more impactful and less impactful sources. Um, but either way, desalination plants take a tremendous amount of energy. So they take a lot of energy, and then the, the process is essentially that they're sucking up salt water and, and then de- extracting uh, drinking water. And then what goes back out is really, really briny water along with the chemicals that are involved in in the process. So... It's places, not like the most sustainable not way the of most, getting, uh, <laughs> water, you're telling me. No, no, and exactly, and especially in a place like Chennai where you have, you know, these coastal ecosystems are already uh, fractured and um, struggling just from the, the human impact of sewage and encroachment and those other aspects that we were talking about that have depleted wetlands that were there. And now you've got salty, toxic brine water being dumped out from the desal plants. So again, it's a, yeah, it's not a sustainable answer for a long-term solution to clean water. Uh, and in your piece, you do identify though some potentially sustainable uh, solutions for uh, reducing water scarcity uh, that seem to be sort of localized that, you know, they're smaller scale, uh, but they're still sort of, it sounds like they're still sort of very labor intensive. Can you just sort of yeah. describe a little, a little of your, um, like what you've reported on, what you've seen in terms of like what communities are doing to boost their resilience against this kind of water scares. Yeah, sure. So, so, so I mean, the, the in my in my book, I focused on an area in Rajasthan. So Rajasthan is like a it's a semi-arid um, area again, very very dependent on monsoon rains. Um, and I went to an area called the Alwar district, um, and that's an area where a fellow called Rajendra Singh started um, thirty years ago. He started 
he, he basically he was like a very good-hearted uh, young activist fellow, and he goes out to the country and he wants to be like a doctor or do some healthcare or something. And the locals were just said, you know, what we need is water. We just everything else is um, the 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 farms are depleted. Uh, all the farmers have left and gone to the city for 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 day labor because they just can't sustain their farms. They can't sustain livestock, and the the landscape was essentially had been. Um, left fallow because they just didn't have the water to sustain it. So the as as Rajendra Singh tells it, uh, an old fellow said, you know, like what we used to have dams and they used to catch the monsoon waters before they ran away. Like help us build these just small scale they call them johads there, but they're basically check dams. So they're often earthen um, dams that are just built across the landscape in sort of a cascading effect to catch the rain as it's going downhill. So we build one and it catches uh, catches it on a hillside and overflows and goes down a little bit and catches it in, in another um, dam. And so it's basically making the water pause long enough that can it can seep down and recharge the aquifer. The idea is that you're just trying to catch these, these heavy, quick rains that come. And um, within just a couple years of him starting to build these these dams, the wells that had gone dry started started coming back to life. So he did this across the entire um, district. They ended up building thousands of dams. Um, interestingly, this was really uh, technically illegal when they started doing it, and this goes back to this long history of um, both in Rajasthan in the area where I was and also in Tamil Nadu where Chennai is, uh, they used to do before colonial British influence um, areas took care of their commons, like managing water resources was a local issue. Uh, Chennai was actually one, uh, along with two adjoining districts, was called the Lake Districts because they had thousands of lakes, you know, some of them sort of cultivated in this older system and some of them natural. But it was it was every in everybody's interest to maintain the health um, of those water catchment areas. And when the Brits kind of came in the colonial influence, the idea was like, oh no, just give us your taxes. We'll take care of it. The state will take care of it. And the, the bureaucracy set in. And even after independence, the bureaucracy remained, but the care of those structures totally fell to the wayside. Um, and there's this really interesting like historical um, element to this that when independence happened in in 1947 in India, uh, there was a kind of a, a, a tension between the Gandhian style of like maintaining these small scale local uh, structures. And then um, uh, Nehru was much more about like big style, Western style development. Uh, so he was much more like pro dams. Um, he called he called mega dams the temples of modern India in 1954. Um, and so there was this this idea of like really let's like we're going to be a modern nation. We're gonna we're gonna use the the methods of the West and we are gonna build big. And so that was the style. But um, even Nehru, just a few years after he said that, really had had a change of heart. And he called, he, he talked about this this um, disease of gigantism, of this idea that we're like really looking too much to the West. And that is a big argument of my book is that India really is a place of small scale um it's it's small scale mom and pop shops. Uh, the farmers are all like working on two or three acres. You know, they're just it's a lot of small scale 
life that happens in India. And so what I argue is that when they're thinking about developing, kind of reviving these historical water resource um, methods, you know, in conjunction with uh, you, you still need some of the big scale. I mean, India is looking is about to become the most populous nation on earth, um, outpacing China really soon. So it's not that we only the small scale little mud dams are going to work. Obviously, we can, we're going to need some of, of that big stuff as well. But um, looking at them together and using them in conjunction with each other seems like there could be a lot of opportunity there. So uh, finally, I'm curious to learn like the social and political impact of water scarcity crises, both in, in Chennai today and also other places that, that you've reported on. So, I mean, for example, in, in a place like Chennai, which has been rapidly developing, which, uh, you know, as you note, like the rapid development has come at the expense of, you know, reservoirs that used to be there that are no longer there. Um, so is there like a, a sense or a, a like a pushback against this kind of rapid development? Or is there other kind of like um, social or political consequence of the sort of, of of this sort of looming crisis of this current crisis, I suppose. Yeah, this uh, this is the this, this is the part that's most frustrating, and and India as a, a democracy is very. Um, I guess you could say vulnerable, like every democracy, to campaign slogans and uh, and big projects are just a lot sexier uh, to get, to get people out to vote than um, than things like we're going to fix leaky pipes. It's just not a very good campaign slogan, even though you know it's it's up to like a third of India's water gets squandered just by leakage and and black market siphoning. So, but. To really work on campaigns um, like that, it's just sometimes hard to get uh, politicians to really embrace that and to get citizens to support politicians who do. Um, and a good example is actually like Jaya Lalitha was the um, chief minister in Tamil Nadu, and she implemented um, back in, I think it was 2012, she implemented a, 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 a really comprehensive rain catchment um mandate in Chennai. So the idea was all new buildings would have rain catchment so that they could be uh, capturing these these rains um, and helping them filter down for reuse or to help recharge instead of just, you know, hitting the roof, draining down to the, the pavement and then washing out to sea. So she mandated that and it was people were really excited about it. And then when the next government got voted in, you know, within a handful of years, they just didn't pick up the mantle and it, it um, technically is still on the books, but from everything I understand and people that I spoke to, it's just the implementation and enforcement has completely fallen to the wayside. So, you know, that that waxing and waning of, um, of political parties coming in and what certain ones care about and how energized the populace gets around issues in terms of wanting to, to make structural changes and finance them, um, that can be a, a trickier part of the equation. I guess finally, if there is another monsoon season as dry as the last one in uh, Chennai, I mean, do you expect a significant outmigration? I, I imagine that that is 
going to have to happen. I mean, just on a, I mean, on a completely anecdotal level. I mean, when a, when I spoke to some of my family members about how they were facing this, um, like some of my aunties who have kids in multiple cities, you know, they decided to leave and they they're like, well, I'm going to Bangalore and I'm going to stay with my other son because um, you know we have water in the house for two hours a day and it's just everything is too difficult. So. Um, and that's somebody who has the option and the choice to be able to do that easily. But I do think that there, um, th- that people will be having to face some really hard questions about where they can live and uh, and survive comfortably, um, or even just survive at all, depending on your on your uh, your means and support. Uh, well, Mira, thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating and. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just hope the, the rains that you said are happening today keep coming. Yeah, yeah. And, and going forward that uh, we can figure out how to, you know, tap into these natural systems instead of just pretending that we can um, we can just build big and solve these problems. Because, uh, you know, that interlinking river project also is like it only works to move water from one place to another if there is water there. And there's really questions about how much we can sustain those systems. Uh, Well, thank you. Great. Thanks for having me so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mira. And I'll post a link to her book and, of course, to her very interesting op-ed, which caught my eye and and made me want to reach out to her on this topic uh, to the website. All right. We will see you next time. Thanks. Bye.